In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. A big week for the Northern Ireland protocol that began in the early hours of Sunday morning with a Twitter war between Simon Coveney and David Frost on the role of the ECJ. Was this all about genuine concern for unionists over the Luxembourg court or a last-minute sabotage of the EU's eagerly awaited proposals on easing the implementation of the protocol. We'll take a look at David Frost's Lisbon speech to see if Edmund Burke is, as some have alleged, currently rolling in his grave. And we'll examine Mara Shevchevich's offering on Wednesday and assess what has changed that has allowed the EU to be paragons of flexibility. We'll also take a look at David Frost's response to the measures, especially in the light of Dominic Cummings' graphic claim that back in 2019, Team Johnson had a plan to agree the withdrawal agreement, but then ditched the parts they didn't like afterwards. And we'll examine the new Dunkirk spirit, why the French port has fallen in love with Ireland. But first, Tony, let's go to the Twitter row that broke out over the weekend. We finished up the podcast last week looking ahead, saying that the main event of the week was going to be Mara Shevchevich announcing on Wednesday what the EU measures were going to be, or what the EU proposals, should I say, would be to begin discussions with the UK to finally arrive at an agreed set of solutions for implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol on the ground. David Frost is due to speak in Lisbon on Tuesday, so it would have been of interest to see what he was going to say. But before all of that, the agenda began to be set over the weekend. What did we hear and who was involved? That's right, Colm. So, as you say, last Friday we were talking, I think, in somewhat optimistic terms about these new proposals from the European Commission that were going to be out this week and even Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP DUP leader, had said that uh, it looked like mines in Brussels and London were being focused uh, on the problems of implementing the protocol and essentially addressing unionist concerns Uh, and there were plenty of briefings, I should say, in Brussels and London about what these new measures would be would look like. Uh, there was talk of uh, a 50% cut in customs formalities. There was a talk of the EU uh, surrendering on this in the sausage wars. That's of course the Daily Telegraph's take on it on Friday. Um, but then suddenly on Saturday night, the Sunday Telegraph early edition ran a story to say that Boris Johnson was braced for an explosive new war on EU judges and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this was going to set out that David Frost's speech in Lisbon would make it clear that uh, stripping the ECJ out of the protocol was going to be a red line for the UK and that the Commission had been warned about this and didn't seem to have taken the warnings seriously. 
That prompted Simon Coveney at exactly 29 minutes past 12, uh, past midnight on Sunday morning, to take to Twitter to say uh, what's going on. Uh, the EU is working very hard to bring about pragmatic solutions to the issues on the ground in Northern Ireland that people are concerned about. Uh, now we have this new red line about the ECJ. Do the UK actually want a deal or not? Uh, and then at, I think, one thirty in the morning, I don't know what these people are doing in Bru- the early hours of well, the morning. Well, Brussels time, in, in but, uh, it's an hour earlier their was time. That, but, but that I, was Brussels time. Oh, I see. Sure. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they, they, they were not uh, obviously watching match of the day. Uh, they were uh, on Twitter and David Frost replied about an hour after Simon Coveney to say that uh, he didn't like conducting diplomacy over Twitter, but Simon Coveney started it. So therefore, he would point out that this was not a new red line. This was not a new demand from the EU, from the UK. He had made it clear in his command paper on the 21st of July that the ECJ was a major fundamental problem for unionists and for the British government. Right. Well, Maros Shevchevic also said last week when he was speaking at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin that this was a late addition. I've heard... Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, in an interview with RTE saying, no, it wasn't a recent addition. This, in fact, was said in the command paper back in July, which in the context of Brexit is relatively recent. But I suppose before we get into the other events of the week, can we just maybe run the rule over the claim that this is a recent addition? Has the role of the ECJ been raised since this document was signed, or indeed was it a major issue when the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed up to in the first place back in 2019, Tony? No, it it wasn't a major issue. It wasn't an issue at all, in fact, in the negotiations around the protocol in 2019. It wasn't an issue when Theresa May was negotiating her protocol in 2018. I mean, it was always written into the negotiations and and the documents which emerged that if Northern Ireland was going to be running the rules of the single market and essentially remain part of the single market for goods, then ECJ oversight would apply. Now, I've you know, looked back over the, my own reporting in the past year since the protocol was agreed and, and uh, you know, we had a year of the transition period um, there was, of course, an agreement between Michael Gove and Mara Shevchevich last December, setting out a range of flexibilities and uh, easements on the protocol. That's when the grace periods were announced. There was nothing throughout 2020 about the ECJ. I've checked every Westminster committee hearing between January and July involving either Michael Gove or David Frost or... Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary. Uh, So these were committee hearings in in the Lords and the Commons dealing with Northern Ireland or the EU Scrutiny Committee or whatever. And there was no reference at all uh, to the ECJ being a problem. David Frost made a couple of very um, passing references to the ECJ uh, having a role in the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, but but that was it. And the only time it surfaced was on the 21st of July when David Frost or the, or the UK government paper drew attention to the ECJ as being a fundamental problem, not just for the UK government uh, in terms of sovereignty, but also for unionists and cross-community support for 
the uh, for for the protocol. Right. And, and this was when officials in Brussels were beginning to get a bit alarmed at the turn this was taking, because they were, of course, saying, "Look, we're going to go to Northern Ireland and find out directly from people on the ground, and we'll find pragmatic solutions for them." What's all this sovereignty ECJ stuff about? Uh, and there, there was already in in August, I think, some alarm at, at the direction of travel. Right. Well, I, I suppose, uh, as we mentioned last week, British officials have said that the role of the ECJ is one of the practicality issues as well as being a sovereignty thing, that things would become unnecessarily fractious and legalistic if if the ECJ had a role. But maybe, Sean, you'd come in on this as well. Uh, what was the catalyst, do we know, for the ECJ being tabled in all of this? I mean, has there been... Uh, any educated guess or, in fact, uh, open statement as to why it was specifically tabled in the terms it was tabled in, in the command paper, if it hadn't been laid out in such terms before? I suspect it's to do with the change of regime from Michael Gove to David Frost that happened in the springtime uh, because you got a, a new way of looking at the issues arising from the protocol. I mean, as Tony has mentioned, uh, Michael Gove published a command paper last December after he had been tweaking uh, elements of the protocol in sidebar negotiations running in parallel with the uh, TCA negotiations to try and make the two uh, bits of uh, treaty uh, work together uh, in a more coherent way. But there was absolutely zero mention of the Court of Justice or any of the other governance issues uh, in that. Um, as Tony says, it's only in the command paper published by David Frost in uh, July that the governance issue comes up as one of three major elements in there. Um, and uh, it is part of, I think, a, a more coherent, uh, cohesive, better worked out, bigger picture view of Brexit, a more ideological view of Brexit, if you like, that is associated with David Frost which he has set out in that command paper, in his speech to the British Irish Association uh, in Oxford, and in his speech in Lisbon during this week. Uh, he takes uh, a more holistic, if you like, um, viewpoint of how uh, the right. Northern Ireland Protocol well, fits into the overall Brexit project. Well, I've seen, as you mentioned... He it reduces it down to the, to the issue of sovereignty, and that's a really important thing to remember in this. Uh, this goes beyond technicalities... Uh, and is into the political and technical arena. Well, seeing as you mentioned it, that speech in Lisbon, and if both of you maybe come in on what you found interesting about it or what gave you particular insights about it. When David Frost spoke in Lisbon, I suppose, why was he there and, and what did he say? I mean, for me, uh, there were there were some really stark and, and prominent uh, aspects of his speech. I mean, he was in, I think nobody had really... Uh, anticipated this trip to Lisbon. The first I heard of it was last weekend, um, and a lot of people were asking why he had travelled all the way down to Lisbon to go into the British Embassy there and speak before a a very small audience of invited guests and a handful of Portuguese uh, journalists. Um, and of course, it, he presented it himself as kind of part two, part two of. David Frost's worldview and part one, of course, was his February 2020 speech in, in Brussels, uh, where he set out his own personal vision of Brexit and right. his own personal journey from being a 
fairly pro-European British diplomat to being a hardcore Brexiteer. Um, and this was the kind of follow-up speech, if you like, where he once again invoked Edmund Burke uh, to, uh, I suppose, give his own ideas a, a historic wind uh, on his back uh, in setting out his beliefs about the freedom that Brexit granted the UK. And this, again, in turn led into, you know, again, this sniping at the EU, uh, somewhat condescending dialogue about how the EU was still very bureaucratic and, uh, you know, it was fixated with customs checks and controls and Britain was going to do things a lot more differently and, you know, they were going to compete against the EU. But he also said that the EU had, and this is one of the striking things for me, he said, the EU had used Northern Ireland to reverse the Brexit referendum or at least to force the UK to closer alignment with the EU. The Northern Ireland Protocol is the biggest source of mistrust between us and for all kinds of reasons we need to fix this problem. I recognise that's not easy. The history here does matter. I do understand why the EU finds it difficult to come back to an agreement that was reached only two years ago, though obviously that in itself is, is far from unusual in international relations. Equally, there's a widespread feeling in the UK that the EU did try to use Northern Ireland to encourage UK political forces to reverse the referendum result, or at least to keep us closely aligned with the EU. And moreover, that the protocol represents a moment of EU overreach when the UK's negotiating hand was tied and therefore cannot reasonably last in its current form. Whether or not you agree with either of those analyses, the facts on the ground are what matter above all. Maybe there was a world in which the protocol could have worked more sensitively implemented. But the world has now moved on and we now face a very serious situation. The protocol is not working. It's completely lost consent in one community in Northern Ireland. It's not doing the thing it was set up to do, protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. In fact, doing the opposite. It has to change. Now, he kind of said it in a roundabout way, saying, oh, that's the perception on the street or wherever. But um, you could see that he kind of agreed uh, with this um, perception. But, I mean, just to pick up on what Sean was saying there about, about why this is an issue now and, and what's the kind of pretext for this ECJ element. I think absolutely sovereignty is a key area, but I think to give themselves some cover, they've also gathered together a clutch of incidents, starting with the alleged triggering of Article 16 by the European Commission over vaccines back in January. Then there was suddenly a problem over steel tariffs uh, for steel entering Northern Ireland. Uh, and then there was the fact that the EU had triggered legal action against the UK when it unilaterally ex extended grace periods back in March. And the kind of argument goes like this, um, you know, because of these uh, incidents, that shows that the EU doesn't really care too much about Northern Ireland. They're, they're, they're quite prepared when it suits them to take this cavalier approach and the architecture of the protocol doesn't permit uh, nuanced discussion uh, of these problems so that the EU t 
takes this cavalier approach, says this is the way it's going to be, uh, and if you don't like it, then the ECJ will tell you what what's what. Um, and in a sense, this is providing the UK with a bit of cover. Now, on each of those points, as Sean, I'm sure, would want to kind of comment on as well, on each of those points, the European Commission or Union would say, look, we were perfectly justified in, in, in doing that. The steel issue was was basically an anomaly that both sides had overlooked. Um, the, the, the vaccines issue was simply a case of the EU saying, if vaccines are going to Northern Ireland, they'll have to have an export license to go there. Whereas if they're going to another member state, they, they don't have to have this uh, license. Right. So well, they're, they're not, they're not terribly the proud of that these. episode. There. I mean, they, they have they have apologised for it and they have tried to point out uh, on every occasion since that it, it was reversed almost. It, yeah, it hardly left the garage. Yeah, yeah, but the exactly. fact that it happened and, at and all uh, is the problem with with the uh, with that um, near activation of Article 16. That was a, a really dumb thing to do uh, by the Commission because it has been the stick that the uh, British side have been able to use against them on every conceivable occasion, and they have hammered them with it. They have absolutely hammered them with it. So it was extremely damaging to the EU. And as Tony says, when you lump it together with all kinds of everything, you can uh, add up to... Uh, a fairly lengthy looking uh, rap sheet, even if none of them uh, amount to terribly much in and of themselves, it does give the British a gripe list that they can come back with and uh, go looking for uh, redress on. Sure, and I suppose why not? All's fair in love and negotiations. If you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to gain concessions, then I suppose you need to amplify your concerns. Probably taking, uh, and this has been referred to several times, Theresa May was too too nice, too polite, she wasn't treated terribly well, it's time for a change of tone and a change of approach perhaps would be the British attitude towards this. Yeah, and, and, and he says in his, his Lisbon speech, I do urge you to look at the image you are presenting to us, uh, and saying again, if there's a trust problem, as we're constantly told there is, it's not the responsibility of only one party. Um, that's, uh, you know, Lord Frost's view. So he's putting it up to the EU. Uh, and also on the other point that Tony was raising about uh, Northern Ireland, I mean, th- there's a view here in London that Northern Ireland was used as a weapon against Britain uh, in the negotiations of the withdrawal agreement, uh, very much so. Now there's a sense of why not turn the tables on the EU and use Northern Ireland as a weapon against them to get the kind of... Uh, concessions that they're looking for now to fix the things that they couldn't fix in the original set of negotiations and push things back in a direction that is more uh, amenable to the British side. Right. Sean, what stood out for you from the speech in Lisbon? I thought it was the sovereignty issue. He, again, Frost makes his his key argument around the issues of uh, British sovereignty, saying uh, that the the reason why we had to go with this, uh, what other people call very hard Brexit, was that it was essential, leaving the customs union and the single market absolutely essential, because it was the only form of Brexit that allowed Britain the freedom to experiment and the freedom to act, as he calls it, so that you would have a new set of relationships with Europe based around competition, uh, not just in trade, but in regulation, Uh, and economic policy, uh, a change in international interests that changes the British pattern of European relationships, uh, which is not necessarily fundamentally, but certainly significantly, uh, and the way things are uh, done there. Also, the emphasis on democracy, calling Brexit a democratic process and a project 
to bring politics back home. Uh, and then it goes on to the stuff about how Britain and the EU are in what he calls a low equilibrium, somewhat fractious relationship, but it doesn't always have to be like that. Uh, but a prerequisite to getting to this sunlit uplands of a, a, a nice but competitive relationship between the UK and the EU. The prerequisite there is in uh, sorting out the Northern Ireland Protocol, which uh, he says is the real uh, sticking point in relationships uh, between the EU and UK and insisting that until that protocol gets sorted out, we can't move beyond it. We can't get into a, a better set of relations. So there's a carrot and a stick there, the, the carrot being uh, a new set of um, decent relations uh, between um, the EU and the UK, where we work on the things that we want to work on. He's particularly keen on defence uh, cooperation. Uh, we trade as trading partners and uh, we compete with each other in terms of science and technology and regulation. But we do things very, very separately. And the uh, an essential part of doing that is this concept of total sovereignty and not being uh, subject to the laws or rules of another court and another jurisdiction. And Northern Ireland, by extension, um, and he's very firm on Northern Ireland being part of the United Kingdom, uh, Northern Ireland should not be subject to those rules and laws uh, and judgments and um, outworkings of the European institutions, certainly without some kind of uh, democratic representation uh, or input into the way rules and laws are made and not in, in the uh, activities of the European Court of Justice and having uh, oversight roles of rules that apply in a part of the United Kingdom. And he's very clear on this. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. So basically telling the EU, butt out. Right. Uh, Tony? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, just, just, to, just to come in there, you know, all, all of that is, uh, you know, a very good depiction of, of David Frostberg. What I think was striking to the point of, of being surprising was, you know, on the eve of the EU bringing forward the kinds of flexibilities that the UK has been kind of begging for for the past 12 months, um, that, that his tone should have been so hostile that, that he couldn't make those sovereignty, you know, competition arguments in a, a conciliatory or less antagonistic way. Um, I mean, you know... The optics of them are important. The command paper was effectively a demand. To be seen to be demanding something isn't really going to change the contents of what Maro Shevchevic would be offering on Wednesday. Or are you thinking more of the reception? Well, it's, it's more, I think, the climate. I think it's more It's, it's more the kind of climate in which these, these talks um, are, are going to get underway. I mean, of course, people are making the argument that the hardball, you know, stud-showing approach of the British government uh, have actually been very effective. You know, the the, com the commission has, you know, turned their rule book upside down, as Mara Shevchevich said, to find solutions. And you could say, well, this is actually an effective strategy because look what we're getting. We're getting all these flexibilities. But, I mean, if you look closely at, at what he says in Lisbon um, and the way he says it, I mean, the, the, the fact is that the protocol graphically declares that Northern Ireland is part of the UK and it's part of the UK territory and it's part of the UK customs territory. His speech also talks about extreme tensions over the EU's vaccine ban. Uh, I mean, if like th these to me sound like 
Daily Telegraph headlines, um, a block on our entry to Horizon, the, the EU's science and research programme. I mean, you could argue that was Britain's decision to leave that programme by by exiting the EU. Threats to our energy supplies through the interconnectors. Again, that's kind of left there as a headline without explaining that All that right, was but I, not I mean, I suppose EU threat. That was a... But both sides, both that, that sides, French minister threat. Yeah. But both sides, say, say for example, the uh, the uh, EU's minister to London speaking last night on Newsnight, saying, "Look, these aren't concessions to the UK. These are decisions being made uh, for to open discussions in the interests of the people of Northern Ireland, mm. which I, I'm sure they are on one level. But on another level, reputationally, it would not be good for the EU." to be seen to be a disruptor of the equilibrium in Northern Ireland. And it was important for them to find solutions because the blame mm. was going to lie with the EU's insistence on rules being implemented and that leading to instability. So I suppose everyone in this discussion is capable of spinning. They are capable of spinning, but also, I mean, what Tony was speaking there about the tone, the aggressive tone of, of uh, David Frost. Remember last week we spoke about this and, and he played the man's own words where he told us uh, that he has always regarded one of the problems with British diplomacy is that it's too nice uh, and that nobody's ever accused him of that and that he drilled his own staff, his negotiating team that he's working with now to be really in your face uh, uh, to the EU and really put it up to them. And he said, this is the only way you're going to get results out of this organisation. So the tone of that Lisbon speech is very much in keeping with the Frost MO. This is how he goes about doing things. It's, it's, it is, uh, you know, Mr. Nasty uh, when it comes to uh, negotiations. Um, you know, when he wraps them up, he always wraps them up in a nice professional diplomatic way and thanks to the other side. But when he goes in at the start, he goes in hard. And that's exactly what he did right. uh, during that speech. Maybe we should take a little extract actually of that, that um, Lisbon speech where he's talking about the issue of the moment, which is uh, the European Court of Justice and indeed other EU institutions and how they interact with Northern Ireland. But it's not just about the court. Is about the system of which the court is the apex, the system which means the EU can make laws which apply in Northern Ireland without any kind of democratic scrutiny or discussion. None of this, we can now see, will work as part of a durable settlement. Indeed, without new arrangements in this area, no protocol will ever have the support across Northern Ireland it needs to survive. Well, that was David Frost, of course, talking there in Lisbon on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, now, in the meantime, quite a lot of things happened. As we know, Maros Shevchevich published his proposals on Wednesday in Brussels on easing the burden of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But also there was an interesting Twitter uh, announcement by none other than Dominic Cummings, who was Boris Johnson's former chief advisor on the protocol. And essentially he said that back in 2019, the British government had decided to sign up to the protocol, the withdrawal agreement. Uh, it was the best deal they could get at the time. But then the plan was for Boris Johnson uh, to essentially bin the parts they didn't like afterwards and after, uh, as he put it himself, I think, uh, after they clobbered uh, Jeremy, or whacked rather, uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the 2019 general election. Now, you know, Dominic Cummings has been obviously extremely active on Twitter and he's uh, essentially a, a kind of subterranean running sore uh, for the Johnson administration, but this time his remarks were picked up 
by the Irish government, uh, in particular Leo Varadkar, who essentially said that this was a warning to the rest of the world that Britain could not be trusted and that you should not sign a treaty with the UK unless you were sure they weren't going to break their promises. Surely the message must go out to all countries around the world that this is a British government that um, doesn't necessarily keep its word and doesn't necessarily honour the agreements it makes and you shouldn't make any agreement with them until such a time as you're confident that they keep their promises and uh, and honour things, for example, like the protocol. I, my, my view of it is that when David Frost was interviewed on Wednesday night after the Sefcovic proposals, he seemed a lot more conciliatory uh, on ITN uh, and he talked about finding a consensus, working very hard to get solutions, uh, looking carefully at the EU's proposals. Uh, none of the kind of talk of ripping up the protocol and starting again with a, with a new British text. Sean? Mm, the Dominic Cummings stuff was interesting, though, and, and very provocative. I mean, he's obviously gone to war uh, with this government. He refers to the ERG as clowns or uses the clown face uh, emoji when he's tweeting out, referring to the e, um, um, European Research Group. Uh, and, of course, the Prime Minister, he famously uh, just uses the emoji of a shopping trolley. Um, but his really provocative one was... Um, where he was dismissing the idea of uh, negotiating in good faith. Student said, politics, it was he calls it. Student politics. And he said, look, it was international diplomacy versus people trying to cut our balls off. Of course there wasn't good faith, you clown. Newsflash, cheating foreigners is a core part of the job. So, you know, that's his view on the thing. Also, um, this idea of uh, get the treaty done, then we'll fix it later. I, I, you know, I haven't been able to research this, but I do have a, a residual memory of this going round in either the Twitter sphere or some of the newspaper or magazine articles back at the end of 2019, early 2020, where there were gripes and moans and reasons for the ERG to come on board and vote for the oven ready deal in the parliament after the election had taken place and one of the ideas that was being promoted then in certain circles was yeah just get it done now and then we'll fix it the way we want to fix it later mm. on and yeah, I, I think, think Steve Baker had come out in public uh, about March and had said yeah. uh, the same thing that he'd been assured by Boris Johnson that it wasn't for the long haul that they were going to come back at this one again and sort it out later on so it is consistent uh, with that idea uh, of moving to uh, get rid of things that you don't like. Um, and indeed, uh, last Sunday in the um, Sunday Telegraph, uh, there was an article by the historian Vernon Bogdanor, um, no friend of the EU he, uh, but he was making the point that uh, 100 years ago this month, an Irish delegation had arrived in Britain to negotiate a treaty, the treaty as we know it in Ireland, uh, the one that we'll be marking uh, 100 years of on December 6th, and then spent the next 30 years or so undoing that treaty, yeah, well, well, having, uh, having getting rid of all the bits from it. To, to briefly dip into that, by the mid-1920s, Ireland sure was making changes, but within the context of the treaty they had signed when they signed the External Relations Act, they were still working within the treaty. When they broke the terms of the treaty by withholding land annuities in 1932, they felt the consequences of it, and there was a punishing trade war reign lasting from 1932 up until the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1938. So, I mean, it's not the best analogy to pick for somebody writing a column about how this is the way to do things if they think it isn't without its consequences. 
No, mm. but n- little of that is known in, in uh, Britain. And uh, you can get away with being extremely selective in your uh, choosing of bits of uh, history. You'd know that. A fair few people in Ireland would know that. Um, there's very few people in Britain uh, would know that. Uh, and that was the consequence. Again, things that people like Professor Bogdanor would know, uh, but wouldn't necessarily uh, have the space to write up in a Sunday Telegraph column uh, where you are more polemic than uh, historically uh, accurate and footnoted. Indeed. Yeah, and if, th- if those changes hadn't happened, I mean, let's not forget this would have to be called the, the Brexit free state uh, as, as opposed to, to Brexit Republic. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, just to pick up on Sean's point there, I think it was reported back in the early months of 2020 after the protocol was signed that uh, Boris Johnson had brought in Suella Braverman as the new Attorney General. Uh, who was, again, a a true blue Brexiteer who would find legal ways of getting the UK out of its protocol obligations. Uh, And, you know, even if she didn't find ways, you know, you can look at a very clear pattern, certainly rhetorically, uh, a lot of ministers right up to Boris Johnson himself saying there there would be no Irish Sea border if you got these documents, you could throw them in the bin. Uh, And the UK took a very long time before setting out how it would implement the protocol in the its its first command paper back in May of 2020. And the problem there was that the Northern Ireland Civil Service couldn't make any of the preparations for border control posts at Larne and Belfast or Warren Point until they got direction from the UK government and funding and so on. And that meant everything got held up until the autumn. Uh, and... And I suppose that gave the UK an excuse to say, look, we can't implement this protocol. We've no time. Nothing's ready. Um, so therefore, we need we need grace periods and, and we can't um, we can't go ahead with this. So, you know, if you're looking for patterns of non-compliance or bad faith compliance, I mean, you can certainly find them. Right. Oh, I suppose we should talk about Mara Shevchevich on Wednesday because that, from the European point of view, is the main event. Today's uh, package has the potential to make real tangible difference on the ground. The reason why I am so confident is uh, simple. We have listened to, engaged with, uh, and heard Northern Irish stakeholders, from political leaders to businesses and a cross-section of uh, civic society. And our proposed solutions are direct, genuine response to concerns they have raised. So what did Mara Shevchevich lay out on Wednesday? Is it enough to significantly ease a lot of the burdens there? Or is it, uh, from the analysis of some people on the UK side, uh, going not quite far enough to get rid of some of the bureaucratic burden that businesses are being faced with in Northern Ireland and indeed on the other side of things, which is making it less attractive for them to trade, uh, making it less attractive for GB businesses to trade in Northern Ireland. So this was the EU's formal response to the UK commands paper in July and it came in the shape of four what they call non-papers or or discussion papers, setting out uh, a range of flexibilities, firstly in medicines, guaranteeing, if you like, that there would be a free flow of medicines from GB to Northern Ireland, 
any medicines that were authorised or licensed in GB would be approved for sale in Northern Ireland. The worry before that was that you would have to move the the kind of uh, authorization hub uh, to Northern Ireland. You'd have to build infrastructure there to do that so you could carry out batch testing and so on, quality control. Um, and there was also a, an issue with medicines that were licensed in GB but not in Europe or licensed that were uh, medicines that were licensed in Europe but then circulated through a, a British hub. Um, there was a, a question mark over whether they could be circulated in Northern Ireland as well for very complex um, regulatory reasons. But essentially the EU is saying we're, we're going to change our legislation to facilitate this. Now, I would caveat all of this by saying there's not a huge amount of detail uh, and that's because these are designed as I suppose, signposts for both sides when they start discussing this or negotiating it for both sides to, to thrash out the technical details. So the other two, three other big areas, SPS, agri-food checks, essentially um, what they're saying is that they would cut 80% of the identity and physical checks of agri-food products coming in from, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. That would mean if you have a big container with with a mixed load of, of food products containing eggs or animal products or dairy. The big nightmare scenario for supermarkets in Northern Ireland was that each product would have to have an export health certificate under EU law, uh, and that's expensive and cumbersome. Uh, now what they're saying is, uh, okay, one export health certificate for the entire load, that would do it. Uh, and what, what they're cutting now is what they call identity checks so you have to look at the at, at what's on the system for each product and then you may also do physical checks if you're doing a risk analyst uh, analysis so again lorries would under the previous model have have been taken in at Larne or Belfast to to be physically checked so so what the commission is saying look 80% of those checks will be reduced under this idea does it still require a high level if not dynamic alignment in the food standards between the UK and the European Union? No, I mean, that, that, was, that was what was required during the grace periods. But th- this is now a kind of a new way of doing it so that you, you, you don't, Britain does not have to dynamically align uh, forever and a day. I mean, that was obviously one of their big uh, red lines, as, as Sean has been saying, anyway, on, on, a, on the sovereignty uh, grounds. Um, but, but th- this would this would just be, I suppose, a, an across-the-board alleviation of of you know the big burdens of export health certificates and physical checks. Now, th- the details will have to be uploaded into the system anyway, v- electronically before you ship this stuff. Um, but but the way that this is being counterbalanced from an EU perspective is that there will be a lot more sharing of data, real-time data, by the UK and by the private sector. So. Marks and Spencers, for example, employ a company to uh, to build a very uh, intrusive minute-by-minute traceability and surveillance system which tracks each product from its provenance to its processing to the, the storage in a chilled uh, warehouse or depot somewhere in the UK and then its journey over the Irish Sea to a, to a Northern Ireland supermarket. So all of that is going to be kind of ramped up uh, and the idea is to provide the EU with uh, the safeguards it's ne- it needs because it would say it's taking a big risk 
uh, with this uh, these new uh, right. uh, proposals, um, uh, and there will be also labelling, much stricter labelling, and so on as well. And, and infrastructure was one of the other things I think in there that the, the capacity would need to be there to conduct checks, whatever checks remaining checks would needed would need to be done. Uh, pets, though, Tony, this is the um, the importance of being able to bring your dog back and forth from mm. NI to GB and back again. This is still an area where a pet passport would be needed in terms of proof of vaccinations, etc. Yeah, I mean, this is a really sore point for a lot of British officials that I talk to. Why on earth uh, do British pets pose a risk to the single market? I mean, this is all about rabies uh, and the fact that under the protocol, you're, you'll have to show that you your pet has had a, a rabies vaccination and a certificate for that before you can bring them uh, into Northern Ireland from, from GB. The British argument is Britain has been rabies-free since 1922. Uh, it's inconceivable that a British pet coming over to Northern Ireland would somehow spread rabies into the single market via the Irish Republic. Um, you know, I, I think, again... This is probably one of those issues that will be uh, brought into the discussions over the next few weeks between both sides. And it, it may well be that there's a fix. Uh, for the moment, the EU is saying the only way that we allow other countries to bring pets into uh, the EU without one of these certificates is if those countries like Switzerland or Norway, if they are aligned with EU rules in this area, right. and Britain has refused to align, so therefore... It, it simply doesn't qualify. Okay. Maybe the only case in any negotiation ever where a live cat has been thrown on the table. Sean, just looking at, at I suppose, the response to Mara Shevchevich's announcement on Wednesday, uh, David Frost picked up in, in the House of Lords. Well, I mean, what, was the, what was the broad reaction to it? Because in Northern Ireland, the, the reaction was, well, there is something to go on here. We'll chew this over. We'll think about it. What was the reaction in GB? Well, that was the broadly similar reaction here in GB, and also some people were floating the idea and letting it uh, run around the newspapers that actually the EU had given a lot more than they thought they were going to uh, give uh, in this uh, first iteration of the paper. Uh, But of course, naturally, uh, the initial instinct, as everybody would expect, was, yes, it's a start, but it's not enough. So you take it, you bank it. Uh, and you hang on to whatever gains you get in the first draft. But of course you go back for more. Nobody uh, takes uh, the first offer uh, of of, uh, any money in any kind of a deal. And it's the same one here. And I think the EU are holding stuff back. The uh, pet passport thing is an obvious one. Uh, Nation of animal lovers, of course, it's a soft spot. If it annoys them, then you're going to use it against them. Um, Also, the EU might say, well, we've seen enough rabid commentary in the newspapers in Britain about us. Maybe we do need to have some kind of a general rabies (laughs) regime uh, for the UK. But in general, yes, there was a lot of stuff there, a lot of things to talk about, and a lot of things for David Frost and his team uh, to uh, start looking at. They can line up their five uh, basic demands that uh, they issue in the uh, command paper back in July and see how many of those boxes get ticked in the uh, initial paper coming from the EU. But again, Frost up in Manchester uh, said his intention in getting into these talks early is to bridge the gap with the EU, but he expected it to be a wide gap. And yeah, sure, there's gaps there between what the British were looking for and what the EU are offering here. And the biggest gap of all is 
back in this area of governance. Uh, there's basically nothing in there about governance. There's some uh, elements there about trying to bring in a, a set up fora for a structured dialogue with Northern Ireland stakeholders. But that's not quite the same thing as uh, fixing this democratic deficit that rules would apply to Northern Ireland that no Northern Ireland politician will have had a hand in uh, passing. Uh, and also the, the case with the uh, European Court of Justice. So, yeah, you'd have some kind of stakeholder forum uh, for business groups, civil society groups, which presumably would take in political parties as well. Also having a stronger link between the Northern Ireland Assembly and the uh, EU-UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly, uh, which is basically a, sort of a, a substitute for the European Parliament in some ways to uh, keep uh, Westminster uh, politicians linked with the uh, European Parliament uh, so they could have occasional uh, meetings to discuss uh, matters of, of mutual concern, but maybe have a, a bigger role for Northern Ireland or maybe even some kind of a, a Northern Ireland subcommittee uh, of that parliamentary uh, partnership assembly. That seems to be the, the limit of what uh, Mr Shevchevich uh, proposed on Wednesday uh, to deal with the uh, governance issues. But again, if, if we could just cast our minds back briefly to Frost's uh, Oxford speech, uh, he was saying some have seen uh, this issue of governance as either ideological, nothing to do with Northern Ireland, or alternatively uh, a discard designed to get us uh, help get us what we really want in the talks. And then he emphasised, no, 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 that's not true at all. Uh, for this protocol to be remotely workable or have any chance of a sustainable future, it can't be on the basis of automatic extraterritorial application of EU law. So he said that uh, right in front of Simon Coveney uh, and others from the Irish side back at the start of September. So again, he's pretty serious, uh, or so it appears, about the uh, issue of getting changes to the governance aspects. Tony? Yeah, I mean, just on that, I think it's probably important to point out that the the protocol does provide for the deputy and and first minister of Northern Ireland to take part in joint committee meetings uh, to take the floor uh, and they can actually put bring forward officials from the Northern Ireland executive and I mean essentially article 13 of the protocol says that the EU can obviously update or amend existing single market rules but if they're bringing in any new rules uh, that are new since the protocol was signed, then the UK can raise objections and they can bring in the objections of the of Northern Ireland politicians, and both sides have to have to thrash this out. So, I mean, it's it's not entirely true to say that Northern Ireland politicians don't get any purchase on this uh, as it is. And I think Mara Shevchevich is saying, look, you know, we can enhance these these arrangements, we can bring in businesses and stakeholders in a structured way so that these are regular meetings, not ad hoc meetings. Uh, but again, that's obviously not going to go as far as what uh, David Frost would like. Anything interesting out of what he well, had maybe, to say in the Lord, we should play a little. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, maybe we should play a little bit of what he said about this in the House of Lords, because uh, it was put to him by a, a Labour peer uh, that... Uh, Article 5 of the protocol provided for EU law, significant parts of it applying uh, to uh, Northern Ireland, and uh, that Lord Frost himself had agreed to uh, that uh, protocol. So uh, how could he say that this law applies without our consent? Uh, here's what he had to say about that and Northern Ireland. Having agreed that protocol, how can the minister say that this law applies without our consent? 
My Lords, there is, of course, a difference between what is in an international legal instrument and what happens day to day. And the... As I'm sure, as I'm sure is understood very well, um, the political difficulty that is being created in Northern Ireland is about that individual legal instruments which come out in profusion from the European Union day to day are applied in Northern Ireland automatically and without any sort of process. Um, and that is not a system that is going to be sustainable that is why we have said these governance arrangements need to change. A bit of mirth at the beginning of David Frost's answer, of course, for anybody listening to this who couldn't see him uh, on his feet in the House of Lords. He brought his own trademark grin to bear amidst the mirth that his answer was greeted with. Yeah, um, mirth and <laughs> some incredulity as well. It has to say, fairly uh, full uh, House of Lords for that appearance by Lord Frost. The lower house isn't sitting this week, uh, so it was the only parliamentary action uh, in town and uh, it was, you know, by the House of Lords standards, it was a fairly feisty back and forth between Lord Frost and his fellow peers of the realm. So, uh, Tony, seeing as we've touched on things of with historical resonance over the course of this podcast... Land annuities. Yes, indeed, to Dunkirk, where you were during the week. What was the spirit in Dunkirk and who was feeling it? Well, of course, you know, synonymous with... Britain's plight during the Second World War, but now Dunkirk is has got a kind of a green tinge. They've launched an Irish terminal to to mark the growing number of uh, routes that are coming direct from Ireland to France. Uh, this is a terminal that will take traffic in from direct from Rosslare. It's about a twenty-hour uh, journey by sea, uh, and this, of course, is all about sidestepping the UK land bridge because of all the. Brexit formalities and uh, paperwork that truck drivers have to endure on the land bridge delays and so on. So the, the Danish company DFDS have opened a line between Rosslare and Dunkirk. They've got five return sailings a week and they're, they've got two ships on there and they're looking at a, a third uh, now a much bigger ship because of the demand by Irish exporters to the single market and also traffic in the other direction. Uh, we can hear, first of all, from Glenn Carr, who's the chief executive of uh, Ross Lair Port, about what he has been seeing at the port since Brexit took effect. Yeah, so since the 1st of January, we've seen a five-fold increase in direct services operating out of Rosslare Europort to the continent. We're here today in Dunkirk with the new service, which is operating now five times a week to, to the port of Dunkirk. Continental freight in Rosslare Europort is up 370% year-to-date. We surpassed uh, last month uh, our 2019 and 2018 total freight figures through the port. And last month here we saw 40,000 units on this service now we've, we've surpassed that mark. Is this beyond expectations or were people saying this is actually in line with what we thought the impact would have? Uh, we knew there would be a great demand I suppose what we didn't anticipate was the surge of that initial shift from what was the land bridge traffic direct onto the direct ferry so uh, what's happened now is it's certainly settled down it seems to be now a constant now flow of traffic moving out of Rosslare Europort to mainland Europe it's here to stay um, land bridge is still there as well but certainly there's been a shift in the supply chains and we're seeing great opportunities for that out of Rosslare Europort continuing with the destinations the likes of Dunkirk, Cherbourg, Bilbao and hopefully many more in the future.
What's the implication of, of this route uh, in terms of Irish exporters getting to those big northern European markets? Yeah, well, the, the, the service from Rosslau to Dunkirk takes you right into northern France. I mean, you're less than 13 to 14 kilometres from the Belgian border. You're onto a, a motorway str uh, straight outside the port here, the A16, connected to all the key European markets. So, feedback from the hauliers is they really like it. Uh, we all know about the shortage of drivers at the moment, so this offers both accompanied and unaccompanied and direct access to the major markets throughout Europe uh, nearly six days a week at the moment. What, what's the potential for growth here? You have three ships at the moment uh, from Ross, Ross there to, to, to Dunkirk. That, that's freight, isn't it? Yeah, there's two service, two ships at the moment. We're in discussions at the moment with DFDS to make that a toured vessel. It's predominantly freight at the moment. Um, obviously, with the pandemic, there was very little passenger traffic. I've no doubt, however, that the business plan for this route will involve passenger traffic. Hopefully, we see that from middle of uh, 2022. And what about in the other direction? What, what's the what are the flows like there from continental Europe into Ross there? Yeah, the flow of traffic has been very interesting. We're seeing as much traffic come in from Europe now uh, and on this route into, into Ireland. So it's really shown both our exporters and importers are benefiting from this direct service. Um, uh, the flow of traffic at the moment would be split about 55 uh, import against 45 export. So it's definitely shown us that supply chains have shifted. Um, supply base has moved for a lot of the main food, agri, pharmaceutical, uh, construction industries now in Ireland who are utilising this service to bring product and services into the country. And finally, the, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, and you know, there's been some attention on uh, north-south trade, are, are Northern exporters using Rosslair and routes like this to get, get their products into the, the rest of the single market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the key thing for Rosslair has been the frequency and choice of services now to Europe. I mean, we're offering up to 28 plus services a week to and from Rosslair to Europe. We're seeing hauliers from all over the country. So we're seeing them from Donegal, from Antrim, from Kerry, Cork, uh, Dublin. Uh, so this service has been picked up from hauliers right across the, uh, the island of Ireland. So that was Glenn Carr there, who's the chief executive of uh, Rosslair Port. Uh, and again, this is an indication of the huge shift away from the British land bridge. We had 14 direct sailings to France before Brexit. Uh, we now have uh, 44. So this is this is obviously a, a huge expansion in in the sea option for trucks. And you know the big argument for the land bridge has always been that it, it is a lot quicker and that if you've got perishable goods or if you're running a just-in-time supply chain operation or sensitive pharmaceutical goods, then you still need to go by the land bridge. But I was speaking to Alan Murnan from the company Syncreon, who uh, run logistics operations from Ireland to continental Europe, uh, shipping stuff that would typically have gone by the land bridge before uh, but he's been saying that the new route from Rosslair to Dunkirk uh, suits his clients just fine. Well since January 1 when they put it into place it's been working seamlessly and our clients are I suppose come on board with us and that's the big thing so we haven't affected any transit times so we can still go to the market in the same timings that were there prior um, the land bridge um, so that's really what we're hoping to do and to continue and some of it here was to support the FDS today and see if they can maybe put more vessels on this and make it a, a stronger and you know sustainable route for going forward. What kind of goods are your clients normally shipping? We would do a lot of computers, um, high value stuff, um, pharma, 
So all stuff that's direct into market. It's not, you know, um, there are other routings into Europe that can be longer transit times, but we need next day delivery, and that's that's what we're at. This suits the very the northern Europe lanes. So you would have had Cherbourg there that if you were going further south. So this gives gives us a, I suppose, a chance with drivers where there's a shortage of that. So that's come into scope as with the UK, as you can see. So we can put trailers on these boats unaccompanied. Some of the guys that are with us here that you've met, they do that predominantly. We're more accompanied, but it just gives the industry a little bit of a breather, you know, where there's a shortage of drivers, that they can still survive. So they can base trucks over here and base them in Ireland and not have drivers moving the whole time. Um, I mean, do you think there's the, there will be the capacity there to meet the demand from... Irish exporters and vice versa? I think so, yeah, and, and they still have to, to welcome back in the tourism traffic. And when that comes in, that puts another pressure on this lane, and that's what they want to tap into that also. So, you know, with more ships, I think it's it'll work for both industries. And Tourism Ireland are here also today, trying to um, get their spoke in and get some space here as well, you know. But we need the freight to be secured. So that was Alan Murnan there from Syncreon, uh, talking about the attractiveness of a sea journey from Rosslare to Dunkirk uh, and that particular route uh, that that is run by this Danish shipping line uh, has shipped I think f- nearly 50,000 units since the start of January um, so that is uh, both unaccompanied containers and uh, trucks as well so I think uh, Alan was making the point there that this is helping with the the current shortage of uh, lorry drivers. So that was actually quite a big event in Dunkirk. The Irish Embassy was there. Uh, Thomas Byrne, the European Minister Minister for European Affairs, was there. And, you know, quite a showing from the local French region and the French government who are very keen to promote this idea of a new kind of link between France and indeed Northern Europe uh, and Ireland through the, these new sea routes uh, such as this with uh, Dunkirk and Rosslare. All right. What can we look forward to in the coming week from your end of things, Sean? Well, as we're recording this a little bit earlier than usual, on Friday afternoon, uh, Lord Frost and Mara Shevtrovich are supposed to be having lunch together to try and progress these uh, <laughs> talks. And then uh, next week proper, uh, from uh, my point of view, well, Parliament is back. Uh, that is to say the House that. of Commons is back. PMQs, Boris Johnson will be back from his painting holiday and uh, fully charged, no doubt, and ready to go. Uh, and we'll see if uh, Brexit makes it onto the agenda there or whether the bigger supply chain issues, rising fuel prices, COVID, etc., etc., all the thousand and one things that politicians normally occupy themselves with uh, will figure uh, in the parliamentary agenda next week. But yeah, it's going to be back. And if there are uh, statements to be made, any grandstanding to be done, there is now a fully functioning and rather crowded forum uh, in which politicians can do that. Tony, we'll probably be talking to you from the summit that's taking place towards the end of next week in Brussels, but I mean, it, will it will Brexit intrude on that summit as it has on so many summits before? Or will that be concerned largely with, with other issues? I think the, the latter column, the, they will work very hard to keep Brexit off the agenda. I mean, the, the view is that the EU has a lot of other things to worry about, namely the energy crisis, uh, gas prices, relations with Russia and China, etc., etc. Uh, the, the big issue at the summit is going to be energy, uh, gas prices, and whether the EU should develop a strategic reserve uh, for itself to make sure that, that customers uh, are 
protected, consumers are protected by high energy uh, prices and the Commission has been uh, issuing meetings and statements about what sort of toolbox uh, it should uh, be developing to help with uh, this energy situation, should governments be able to bail out energy companies and so on. So that's really the big issue. Also, I think the rule of law, the whole question about Poland and uh, that Polish ruling last week that said that uh, EU law cannot be uh, supreme in Poland, that's caused a lot of consternation at EU level. And um, (laughs) I'm told that uh, when EU ambassadors discussed Maros Shevchevich's proposals on Wednesday uh, and then uh, discussed David Frost's uh, latest opinions on musings on the European Court of Justice, uh, the Polish ambassador was the only one to express some sympathy for the UK when it comes to the ECJ. So I think right. we know but why. But if Michel Barnier, <laughs> so. if Michel Barnier was still knocking around Brussels, maybe he would have expressed possibly some sympathy as well in the teeth uh, right. of the French election. All right, that's it from me, Colm Mungo, and RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London, and from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.